Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And uh, like I said earlier, happy Advent. We are in our Advent series looking forward to the, uh, to the birth of Christ and also looking uh, to the, the, the coming of Christ when all things will be put to rights. And so that's the season that we're in right now. Colossians chapter 2 is where we're going to begin. And uh, this, is a, this is a letter to a first century church that Paul is writing. Paul is one of the apostles. He's going around planting churches, starting churches. And uh, he actually um, writes letters to these churches to help in form their theology, to make sure that they are having clear theology, that they are seeing Christ accurately. And uh, he says this, this is so powerful. So if you're in Colossians chapter 2, let's stand for the reading of the scriptures. So it says this, Colossians 2 verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Everybody say all. All. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Let's all go and read. Uh, I think we have a, that shouldn't be a slide, but okay. Do we, yeah, here we go, right here. Let's read this together. Uh, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb And by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. This is the word of the Lord. What I'm attempting to do in this series is I'm attempting to talk about what Jesus came to do. What was Jesus trying to accomplish here on earth? Why did he come here to earth. Now, last week we talked about how the incarnation, God coming into the physical world, coming into flesh, heals our relationship with creation. If you missed that, go back. We have a podcast. Go back and listen to it. But this week is this. The incarnation liberates humans from the gods. The incarnation liberates humans from the gods. I can't go a year without talking about the gods, okay? So I had to, I had to get it in there some, some way. So here's what I want to say. Life is hard. Anybody in the room know that life is hard? Yeah. Life is tragic. I think when we look over at what's happening in Israel and Gaza, you go, life's tragic. 
tragic. I saw um, uh, a, a picture of an infant that had been abandoned in a hospital and had completely just died on the hospital bed, just sitting there. Life is tragic. But I want to say this. There are degrees. It doesn't have to be as hard as it could be. Did you know that? In fact, the New Testament, uh, written by often beaten and imprisoned men, says that you can live a life of triumph. And what I want to say this morning is that who you listen to will determine much of the possible pain you experience. Let me say that one more time. Who you listen to will determine much of the possible pain that you experience. Let's start here. What is a human? You know, last week we talked about what the physical world is. What is a human? Go ahead and turn to the left in your Bible to so Genesis chapter 1. It's with probably the first page in your Bible or one of the first pages in your Bible. Genesis chapter 1. You know, if we are living in the theater of God's heart, that's what we said last week, what the physical world is, it's the theater of God's heart, meaning that all of the attributes of God needed a physical representation, and boom, the world, creation. If that's, the, if that's what creation is, it's the physical representation of the heart of God, then what are humans? Well, we have these mysterious words in Hebrew. Look down at your Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, I'm sure that you've heard the Latin translation of this phrase, in his image. It's imago Dei, but that's a Latin translation. The original Hebrew words are hu salem. Can you say that? Hu salem. Who is his, and Salem in Hebrew is idol or statue. Imago Dei, what is it? It's who Salem. His image means his statue or his idol. What does that mean? What could that mean? Well, here's a statue of uh, Napoleon. And uh, this is one of Napoleon's statues in Paris. And uh, I, I just, I just want to ask you this question. What is it doing there? Why, do, why have a statue of Napoleon? Well, it's to make you think about Napoleon, right? It's to make you think about his character, his accomplishments. In a sense, it is there to represent Napoleon. Don't forget about Napoleon. We can't forget about Napoleon because there's his statue, Right? And so we are, what are humans? We're Husalem. We are his idol, his statue. What are humans? We are living and breathing, moving statues of God here on earth. We are designed to do what God does in the spiritual here in the physical. What is true about God in the spiritual, we are designed to express in the physical here on earth, extending God's rule, his spiritual authority, into the physical world so that we reveal him 
we actually represent him. But here's the lesson of Genesis chapter 3, and really the whole book. You can go ahead and take Napoleon down. Uh, (laughs) I think he was taken down, and they maybe got him back up. But anyways, uh, here's the lesson of Genesis chapter 3, and really the whole book. Trust God, and you will choose like he would choose. And Eden will be wherever you go. But if you don't trust God, you will play a role in breaking creation. Trust God, and you will choose like God. And you will extend Eden wherever you go. But you don't trust God, and you will play the role of breaking creation. See, what it means to be who salem in a single word is this. It's agreement. It's agreement. It's the power of being a human. What you agree with, you extend through your life. What you agree with, you extend through your life. You don't just get hit by, the the demonic doesn't have the power to just, you know, hit you and take you over and, and control your body. No, 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 no. That happens through agreement. You agreed with the lie. In the same way, when God gives you a suggestion, hey, you're the kind of person that fill in the blank, and you choose to believe him, you agree with him, you extend him through your life. That that is a power of being human. The animals don't have that. Plants, rocks, material doesn't have that ability. That is who, Salem. And it's agree with God and get eaten. Agree with the beast, and you will become a beast. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. (laughs) You will certainly not die. The snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, This is the classic dilemma that inspires all sin within the human race. But I want to bring something out of it this morning for you. Remember the sort of relationship that humans were supposed to have with animals all the way back in Genesis 1 verse 26? Humans are supposed to rule the created world, rule the animal world. Humans are intended to rule animals, but here a human is being ruled by an animal. Do you see that? The beast has gotten control. Now skip to verse 13. Here's what God says about all this. Then God said, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Here's the key verse. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, singular, will crush your head and you 
will strike his heel. Did you catch that? You can't get 10 minutes away from the fall of humankind without there being a light shining at the end of the tunnel. This beast, this created being that deceived humans, that is wrecking humanity, that is causing distrust between humans and God, he's going to get his head crushed. Humanity has been deceived and failed to be God's idols in the garden. A beast ruled them rather than them ruling the beast, but this line is so glorious. He will crush the offspring of the woman. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Redemption of all creation is coming through a human. That's what we learn here. There will be wounding for this human, the striking of the heel, but also there will be victory for this son of Eve, the snake's head being crushed. Now, notice this line, there will be enmity between your offspring and hers. Does this mean there's going to be a battle between snakes and humans? For some of you, yes. You have, your, your life has been a battle between you and snakes. You hate snakes, but no, that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that there will be a battle between those who are influenced by the snake, by Satan, and humans who are the way they were designed to be. Offspring of Eve offspring of the serpent. There will be a battle between those who become offspring of the snake by listening to the snake and those who become true humans by listening to God. And I want you to understand something that, that, that this is teaching us. We don't, humans don't inhabit this world. We cohabit this world. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are real gods, real spiritual beings who are on the side of the serpent, who are the serpent seed in this world. We don't inhabit this world. We are cohabiting this world with real spiritual powers who, just like the serpent, are working for you to agree with them and their lies. The Bible actually calls them gods. You don't believe me? Check this out. Psalm 82 verse 1 says this, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. Now, here, the word for God is Elohim. Some of you are getting tired of this, but some of you are new to this. Here, the word for God is Elohim. In the grammatical context, there is a singular Elohim who stands among plural Elohim, gods. There is one God amongst a council of gods, and here, God Yahweh is expressing his superiority to the other gods. Now, the story of the Bible tells us that after Babel, the nations of the earth are given over to these gods. You're like, where? when was that? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 32, uh, looking back at the Tower of Babel story, here's what it says. Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, when was that? That was Babel. He set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Pay attention to that phrase. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. Okay, so at Babel, what's happening? 
God has an inheritance, and it's in a word Jacob that just stands for Israel. It's the people of Israel. That's God's inheritance. But the nations of the earth, the peoples of the earth, they also have an inheritance, and it's the sons of Israel. Now, this phrase, sons of Israel, is also translated sons of God. It's a, it's a technical term that is used all throughout the Old Testament, sons of God or sons of Israel. Now, this can't mean that the nations were divvied up according to the number of Israel's tribes, like the sons of Israel and each tribe got a nation. I don't even really know what that would mean, but here's the other problem. It's Babel. Israel doesn't exist at the time of Babel. This is pre-Abraham, okay? So the better translation is probably sons of God. Now, that phrase sons of God is used all over the Hebrew Bible to mean the Elohim or the gods, these real spiritual beings like the serpent in the garden who were created to worship God but who fell away from God. And what I'm saying is that Babel was such a travesty because there was a giving over of the nation, to, nations of the world to these lowercase g gods who are the seeds of the serpent. Are you following me? Okay. Now, we actually get a list of these gods. Who are these gods? Well, we get a list of these gods according to their nations in 1 Kings 11. This is speaking about Solomon and his wives. Remember, constantly through the Hebrew Bible, don't marry foreign women. Don't marry foreign women. Don't marry foreign women. It's like, what's wrong with foreign women? Well, these foreign women come from foreign nations who were given over at Babel to the gods. And they have gods that they worship, and they will draw your hearts away from Yahweh to the gods. So here's what happened to Solomon. He followed Ashtoreth the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Okay, so maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, hmm, this is a weird Sunday. And you're thinking, this is a weird Advent. <laughs> And maybe you're thinking, well, weren't these just ancient people with superstitions? Well, that's not how the Bible presents it. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus actually names a God that is probably the most pertinent God for us today. Here's what he says. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay, where, who's the God there? Where's the God in there? Well, the word for money that Jesus uses is mammon, or in Greek it's mammonas, which sounds even cooler, mammonas. Now, if Jesus wanted to just refer to money or to wealth, he could have used the term drachma, or he could have used the term nomisma, which are Greek terms for money. But he uses a word, mammonas, which comes from a Syrian deity who was the god of riches. Think about it. Who do you know in your life who would say, I serve money? 
Nobody thinks that way. Nobody's like, I serve money. That's my God. Doesn't money serve us? You know, if he's just talking about money, shouldn't Jesus say something like, you cannot serve God and use a lot of money? No. Because mammon isn't just money. It's the God of self-made living. There's an early 20th century painting by Evelyn de Morgan that I think captures this. It's the worship of mammon. See, when you think you're in control of money, what you may not realize is that money is probably in control of you. And Jesus believed that there was a real God with real power behind the love of money. Okay, you can take it down. Here's my point. Humans have a problem. We are not the only ones inhabiting this place. We are cohabiting this place with gods who are less than Yahweh. The Bible is repeatedly clear about that. Some people have thought, oh, you know, these gods must, you know, it, it says the gods are nothing. They're, they're, they're dumb idols. You know, they're, they're, and so people have thought, well, these gods are not, they must not be real gods, and, and there must not be any other god. There's no other god but Yahweh. The Bible says that. Well, yeah, in comparison, he's that great. And why would Paul pen in Colossians chapter 2 that he made a public spectacle of nothing? No, he made a public spectacle of real gods. The Bible is clear that these are real, there are real gods who have real power. So the question is, what do the gods want? What are they here on this earth to do? Well, they want to do what the serpent did, which is they want to undo what God wants to do. It's very simple. What do the gods want? They want to undo what God wants to do. That's what we see from the very beginning. It is an undoing of what God has done. In other words, these gods don't create anything. They simply uncreate what has been made. The good that God has intended, they try to undo it. You know, I'm a sucker for a good documentary. I love documentaries. And, and it, it's like you watch a trailer, and next thing you know, you're just sucked into like six episodes. Uh, that's at least how it goes for me. But I recently uh, watched a documentary on a cult, and it was headed by cult documentaries. I'm sorry. As like a pastor, I'm just like fascinated. Um, cult documentary. It was a cult documentary that was headed, uh, this cult was headed by a woman who believed that she was all of the gods from the various religions combined into one. Turns out she wasn't. Um, <laughs> but this, this story, it documented this, this woman's life. She went from, in 2006, she was the mother of three, she was a manager at a McDonald's. She was a beautiful but wounded young woman. And you're like, how does she turn into a dead cult leader by 2021? And you just watched as she just continued to make agreement after agreement with the gods. It was the most on-the-nose documentary I have ever seen. It all began with using drugs. And she said, you know, she started using drugs, and she thought, you know, what if what I see when I'm on a drug trip, when I'm smoking marijuana, when I'm, when I'm uh, eating mushrooms, like, what if what I'm seeing there is more real than my real life? Now, what's interesting, and for those of you who have, are using marijuana or using any kind of drugs, this should scare you, uh, is that the Greek word for sorcery is pharmakia, where we get our word pharmaceutical. 
Ancient Greeks used words like pharmakia to refer to psychoactives. And Paul uses the word pharmakia to hint at the use of illicit drugs in ungodly spiritual practices. Interesting. So she begins to take drugs. She begins to believe that, uh, you know, what she's seeing on these trips is more real than her real life. And she starts talking about the galactics, a group of gods that she consults for her life. She's like, I need to talk to the Galactic Council about this. That's like, I'm like, oh, that's so, that's in here. That's so on the nose. And these gods begin to instruct her. They, they tell her to use alcohol as medicine. They to- tell her how much drugs to take. And they literally, you watch her body. Just, it, it, she's getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And, and, and her followers keep consulting the Galactics. And no surprise, they get instruction to basically destroy her life. It was just an example, tragic example, of what agreement with gods will do to your life. And it was interesting to me, you know, um, as, as I was watching, I was like, wow, that is such a blatant example of what happens when you agree with uncreating gods. They didn't make you. You were made for your maker. You know, in their cult, um, their aesthetics were bad. Maybe you don't care about aesthetics, but to me, I was like, gosh, like their colors, like everything in their house was disgusting, like colors clashing. There's no shape or form. They like ate all, they were eating veggie trays. That's like what they ate. They all ate like veggie trays and they just had the lowest, it was the lowest taste. The music was bad and and dissonant. And, and, you know, I sat there and I wondered, am I, am I being a snob? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm a snob, like no questions asked. But then I thought this, I thought, you know, I, I had this moment of, of, of thought, everything is theological. Do you know that? Everything is theological. The beauty of Western architecture, I'm not talking about modern, modern architecture, the real architecture, I'm talking about classical architecture, the beauty, some things were made to be destroyed. The beauty of Western architecture the nuance of French food, the dignity of the family, the virtues of Western culture, they are not random. They didn't have to happen. They all come from an unseen place, a place where virtue lives. God's virtue, his truth about the world that he designed. You know, the school that uh, Johann Sebastian Bach attended to learn about music theory. Music was secondary to theology. And and theology was taught by the same music master because music was seen to reflect theology. Western music uh, in the classical tradition is tonal, meaning that all musical pieces are loyal to a tonic key or a home note. Every single instrument within the piece of music gives preference to this one note, making it the tonal center to which all other tones are related within the piece. Why? We don't chant. We're not chanters. We don't, uh, you know, drone on with just monotonous tone. It's multiple tones all relating to a home tone, a home key. Is that random? No. No. The Bible says there is design. 
You were made for a home. You were made for God. See, our lives have a center. They have a home. They have a gravity, and it's God. And so our music reflects that. Our music has resolve. Soaring melodies that if you cut out the last home note, they would leave you wanting almost insufferably so. But when that final home note is played, it's resolve. Do you know what that is? It's resurrection. You thought it was just pop music. No, it's resurrection. It's home. Even our music tells a theological truth. See, all things are theology. All things are theology. The question is, which theology? The gods who are uncreating or God who made you? Now, maybe you're not a cult leader who believes that you're all of the gods put into one. And good. I hope you don't believe that. But could you find yourself somewhere in here? Think of the man who sacrifices his time with his family on the altar of producing more money. Or think of the woman who sacrifices her body on the altar of youth and beauty. Or the young adult who sacrifices honesty on the altar of projecting an image in order to be liked. Or think of the husband and the wife whose evenings of conversation and connection have slowly turned into this. I would argue that behind these are the gods of the West. Money, sex, power, and distraction. All of which have real demonic energy behind them. And when we sacrifice God-given gifts of family, of friendship and honesty, of the union of a husband and wife, we are not simply chasing material and people. We are actually giving ourselves to God's. We are giving ourselves to uncreating Elohim. We are agreeing with demonic ways of seeing oneself, God, in the world, and it uncreates us, filling us with fear and scarcity thinking. And guys, this is why the incarnation, this is why Jesus came. Jesus comes to recreate humans, to to bring you back to the Father, to reconcile you to him. Here's what we read at the beginning. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to the cross and having, I love this, disarmed, let's all read this, disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That is good news. That is good news. He did this so that humans could go from acting like beasts to being human again. Jesus comes to give an example of what a human who says no to the gods and yes to the Father looks like. You know, the miracles that Jesus did are not cool tricks to prove that he's God. No, it's a strategic reordering of creation back to Eden. It's what should be. His teaching, it's not just information, it's an entirely different way of viewing God and the world and yourself. The cross, it's it's a lesson. Obedience to God releases others. And it is on that cross, the darkest moment in human history, where it could have seemed that the gods had won, that Jesus triumphs over them, 
in the resurrection. You remember what was prophesied in Genesis 3.15, the crushing of the serpent. Well, friends, the message of the incarnation brings hope, and it's the hope for crushing what has been crushing humans. Christmas means humans get their glory back, and they get to join in the crushing. Here's what Paul says to the church in Rome. I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet. He shares his victory. So maybe you're wondering, maybe let's get practical. Maybe you're wondering, just how crushed is my life by the gods? Just how much influence have I given to the gods of this world? Am I influenced by demons? Well, I want to give you a test to find out. And it's called the hope test. The hope test. This is the test that you need to know if you've been influenced by demons. It's the hope test. I heard a pastor recently say that God told him he had permission to be hopeless about anything that God is hopeless about. (laughs) You can be hopeless about anything that I'm hopeless about. And it's funny because God isn't hopeless about anything. I want you to understand this. Maybe take a picture of this next one. Any place without hope is under the influence of a lie. And any place under the influence of a lie is under the influence of the demonic. Do you understand what I'm saying? Any place in your life without hope is under the influence of a lie, and any place under the influence of a lie is under the influence of the demonic, because God is not a liar. Satan is. The gods are. So I want you to really think about this for a moment. Have you lost hope anywhere in your life? Have you lost hope with your money? Like, I'm never getting out of debt. Have you lost hope with your parents? We're never going to be reconciled. Have you lost hope with your kids? They're never going to come to faith. Have you lost hope with your future? God's never going to do anything with my life. In those very places, you have given your agreement to the demonic. And it has produced hopelessness. And so you have shrunk back from engaging in the very place where God has called you to. So you've got to ask God for his vision and his perspective. See, hope is not random. Hope comes when you attach faith to a specific issue. Hope comes when you attach faith to that issue. I'm hopeless about this. I'm hopeless about this. I'm hopeless about this. I can't just tell you, hey, you should just hope for the opposite of that. You should hope. You're like, uh, no, 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 no. You have to go, God, what do you say so that I have a new thing to believe, a new truth to believe, so that I'm not stuck just believing the same old stuff that I've always believed. I have a new belief that gives me a new emotion, which gives me new actions. And that's how your life changes. So. I want us to read this out loud one more time together. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. 
How do you crush the gods of this age? It's the blood of the lamb. So you go, I'm washed. I'm completely, you say this about yourself, I'm completely free. I am loved by God. His blood proves that someone was willing to die for me. God's blood speaks joy over me. I don't have to think negatively. I can hope in every situation because the blood of Jesus conquers. That's not prideful. That's just true. That's just true. And the serpent wants to come and say, you can't say that. You can't say that. No, 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 no. The blood has conquered. You've been thrown down. And I'll conquer you. I'll crush you with the blood of the lamb. And then you know what you do? You tell your testimony. What does it say? It says, by they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So you remind yourself of what God has done. Any story about salvation is miraculous. Any story about salvation is miraculous. It's a miracle when somebody hears from God. It's a miracle when they choose to turn towards him. That's miraculous. So you share testimonies. You fill your mind with God's ability and lies will be confronted. And that, you plead the blood. You share testimonies. That is how you join in the crushing. You choose to believe God instead of the gods. I want to pray for you. Go ahead and stand. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, Download the Saints Hill app in the App Store or visit our website.